0: Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind.
1: And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Wan. My co host Ethan Elkind is off for the night, but you'll hear him later on, the, on in the show talking with the folks behind Golden Thread Productions, a group that focuses on producing plays and content with a Middle East perspective. But first, if you haven't noticed, it's Halloween. I sometimes think this is the Bay Area's official holiday. Houses are decked out in their eerie finest. Children are decked out in their eerie finest, or just basically looking adorable as they make the rounds trick-or-treating. It's a night of spooks, giggles, and a lot of joy. And then there is the day after. After Halloween, tired kids strung out on sugar, tired adults strung out on tired kids. November 1st might be one of the most challenging days of the year to parent, but we have help for you, dear listeners. Joining me tonight is Darcy Campbell. She's the director of the Cow Hollow School, a preschool based in the Presidio. Darcy has 30 years of experience working with children, parents, and teachers, and she is the spirit guide you need to get yourself through tomorrow. So welcome to State of the Bay, Darcy.
2: Uh, thanks so much, Grace. Yeah.
1: So you have taught um, and dealt with children and teachers for 30 years. I'm just curious, what is typical classroom behavior you see on the day after Halloween? Uh,
2: well, I, I guess it's 38 years, but that's uh, 38 not.
1: years. Okay. <laughs> you look so good, Darcy. That's I mean, right. Yes. Uh, um,
2: so from elementary school down to tinies and their parents. So it's a typical behavior that I might see. Um... Again, it really depends on the age, but children are often tired. They're trying to process. They want to tell stories. They want to compare. They want to be listened to. And I think actually this um, year in particular, they might be confused and are trying to make sense of coming door-to-door, face-to-face or face-to-costume face or costume face-to-face. And so I think that children are – this year, I think it's a little different because we now have sudden exposure to strangers that they've been – kind of cloistered away from. So I think it's different. But I think preschool teachers, elementary school teachers come armed with compassion, with structure, and with um, a lot of plans for navigating the many emotions that are coming out of a sugar high and <laughs> the night with not enough sleep. Yeah.
1: I mean, what kind of advice would you have for parents about the day after? How do you handle the crankiness?
2: Oh, well, um, children are actually looking for you to navigate this situation. So I think that's important to remember. Remember that, as I said, they've had a few years of not socializing, of being to keep their distance, not just from strangers, but anyone. Um, and then mm. we throw them into grocery stores, social situations, talking to strangers. It seems only natural. And the reason I'm saying this, is because I think it's important for adults to remember this piece of the story, that it would seem natural Even if we've done this for years, the children would have some aftermath, you know. Um, So to deal with the crankiness or all of the categorization and the making sense of this, the processing, I'd say before you plan a solution for this, think about your child's. uh, These are a few elements I always think about and ask my parents to think about. Think about your child's temperament,
1: Hmm.
2: about behaviors either learned or practiced or scripts that they're stuck on. Think about their age and think about, is this a new situation to your child? And what do you what do you normally do to set your child up for new situations? And yeah,
1: go ahead. <laughs> no, I mean, I think it's fascinating. And you've been referring to the fact that, you know, for the last two years, kids haven't really had this level of exposure to strangers. I mean, have you noticed um well, I'm sure you have noticed a difference in the children now um, because of that, the way we've been socialized in the last two years?
2: Um, you know, I mean, because we have, as a school, have been open, I think not, uh, yes, and also just some of these things we took for granted as the grown-ups around young children, that they, they'd had experience, or they, you know, from zero to two, they had some experiences being exposed to children, exposed to children, exposed to adults. And a lot of those, we have a, a, not a void, but we have a difference of exposure and a difference of how you interact with people for years. And now that things are cracking open, there seems to be an adult assumption that we get to just keep moving on as if that never happened, but our children don't know, they haven't built up this big reservoir of experiences of talking about, thinking about, talking to people they don't know. So I think you know, keeping in mind that during this time, you know, you're, you're the, as grownups, you're your child's guide mm-hmm. and you are the protector of this, but also keeping them in mind. I think, you know, what's under a behavior, um, you know, behavior of throwing themselves on the floor or d- insisting on something you already told them they couldn't have or throwing a fit or hiding and not wanting to talk to you, you know, understanding what's under that the mm-hmm. behavior, the confusion, the crankiness—it's a lot easier to address those elements than it is the behavior. Mm. And if that makes any sense, like if we understand what is under here, mm-hmm. what's going on, then we, as grown-ups, don't get quite as caught up, you know. Mm-hmm. They, so, as the guiding protector, if your children are tired after being around a bunch of crank, uh, a bunch of people, and or they get cranky because you didn't plan for how many pieces of candy they could get (laughs) you know um you know i'd say things to navigate this situation one state the expectations Mm -hmm. we're gonna come home and we'll have 20 minutes and you can have one piece of candy and then we're going to your bedtime routine Mm -hmm. you can have one piece of candy tomorrow Mm -hmm. no your child blows out (laughs) no that's not happening i don't want that i want x y and z it's yeah i hear you commiserate what your child wants you to know is that this is new. I don't like the boundary you just gave me. Mm -hmm. And I just need to tell you that's going to the, what's under it as Mm -hmm. opposed to going to the behavior itself.
1: Well, it seems like what your suggestion is one to have a clear plan for yourself, right? (laughs) So you can create the boundaries for your child. So for example, tonight you suggested, you know, you might be telling your child one piece of candy and then to bed. Um, and when a child is just, I and mean, we're talking about little kids in particular here, I mean, when they're so amped up and excited because, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to go outside at night and to go around to strangers' houses and collecting candy that they're giving up for free, how do you bring them down from that?
2: Um, well, again, I'd say have a plan. Is its it... <laughs> is it- and I, I know I've, I've said that a couple of times already, but I think it's really important because it sets up us up for success. Mm. Like, what are we going to do? And if you state the behavior ahead of time, hey, we're going out trick-or-treating. It's going to be crazy. This is happening. And we're going to talk to people we haven't seen. Mm. And this is what's going on. And then when we come home, we're doing X, Y, and Z. You get to hold your child to that. You also get to hold yourself to it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it also is a way to hold yourself and your child children accountable for if things don't go as smoothly as hoped. Whoa, that was hard. Mm -hmm. We've never done this. We don't know what we're doing. Um, I'd say setting, setting that system up like, Hey, we're home. Let's decide what your rituals are. I'd Mm -hmm. say on a night full of unpredictability or an hour or however long you're deciding to do this for, put some predictability back in it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Write it down. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm nodding my head saying, like, I wish I had done all of those things. <laughs> you know, I think another challenge is, especially when you're parenting with a partner, yeah. is, I mean, the beauty of having a plan is that you and your partner are now on the same page, more or less, right, about what's going to happen next. I mean, I think when you have little kids, it's constantly reacting and being reactive to whatever right. they're doing. And uh, again, we we well, let's say again about the plan, it's like when you have a plan, at least you and your partner know where to go.
2: Yes. Yes. I think it does. Again, it sets us free a little bit from the unpredictability ourselves and so that we aren't reacting because you're just responding. And I think, I, I know I said this also too before, but commiserating with your children, mm. on, uh, there's something called help, honor the impulse, mm-hmm. empathize, or I think there should be a C, but it doesn't work out in the afternoon. <laughs> and <stop>. um, commiserate <laughs> and then listen. Mm-hmm your child being ticked off about something right like, why shouldn't they be ticked off they had a they had a different plan even though you talked about it for 20 minutes before you left
3: mm-hmm.
1: so
2: it's okay just to, to do that and then problem solve together and I think to that dual parenting or single parenting when you're doing it alone and you're like I'm the lawmaker or you are dual parenting and trying to navigate this but maybe have different feelings about it I think that the, the planning the commiserating the validating and validating does not mean by the way grace going down the rabbit hole with your child right it doesn't, it's different than validating as a grown-up like oh my gosh that's so awful let's talk about this and oh you must be in pain it's like yeah that was hard mm. okay now what's our plan <laughs> <laughs> it's a different story we're talking about looking at this halloween or any experience actually where change and just equilibrium is at hand from this the place of putting on your the, uh, the lens of childhood, mm-hmm. but remaining the grown-up.
1: Right. And I think that, I mean, the way you say it um, is so – it, as you're telling us right now, it, it's filled with both empathy and matter-of-factness. You know, it's, yeah. yes, that's hard. Yes, that's yeah. difficult. You know, and there's no patronizing there. It's just sort of an acknowledgement.
2: Yeah. And I'd say even stated in the, the tone, I being a preschool teacher, our, our faces move constantly and <laughs> voices go up and down. I'd say there is a lot of mileage you can get out of matching your child's tone when they're upset. And I don't mean being um, fake, but it's just like, ah, oh, that's not what I want. You're like, I know, I, I get it. <laughs> Oh <laughs> my gosh that was not what you wanted it is what we planned and take the word but out of any of your conversations with your mm. children during this plan
1: yeah yeah children,
2: children basically under seven can understand two opposing realities simultaneously so say and it can give us an example
1: of that i just uh... um
2: you want that candy oh my gosh and we came up with a plan we're sticking to our plan let's do this i hear you you're so mad
1: ah versus saying but we're sticking to our plan <laughs>
2: Ah, uh, then your child's like, "Okay, game on."
1: Yeah. So
2: you just enter the ring. We are in a war now. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's amazing how that small change, that small semantic change can make the whole difference between an okay night to a night of horror. So,
2: yeah, your kids are picking up on it. They're like, "This is a contradiction."
1: Well, you know, let's say for, let's talk about the next day, that next morning. Oh, yeah. I mean, is it okay to not send your kid to school if they really are not pulling it together in the morning?
2: I would say absolutely, but that's your decision, not theirs. Mm. So, Tell me more about that. Um, you know, you, well, first again, back to temperament, development, behaviors, you know, go back to like, okay, my kid does not navigate if they've stayed up too long well. They just don't so make that grown-up decision and just say you know what we're gonna stay home and we're gonna hang out and have some eggs and we're gonna go to school late notify your teachers it's always a nice thing to do
1: mm-hmm.
2: um and if you have one of those kids who can you know leap tall buildings in a single bound and <laughs> it's going to be fine and you were careful about their did not give them candy for breakfast. Be nice to your teachers, please. Uh-huh. Um, and <laughs> if, if that's the case and you're like, yeah, this structure is really important. So, mm-hmm. if, I, I mean, I hate to do this, Grace, but I think it does, it does beg, it does cause us to ask questions. How does my child navigate disequilibrium? How does mm-hmm. my child navigate change? How do they sleep?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And But
2: you are... It's not your child saying your three-year-old, two-year-old, ten-year-old saying, "I don't want to go to school today because I didn't have enough sleep." That's mm-hmm. so much power for your little person to have. Mm-hmm. And I do believe in learner empowerment, but I, I don't I, like. It's all over our website. It's, I, but I also think your children are looking to you to be the guides and the ones that are reliable.
1: Hmm. Hmm. That's well, so, such smart advice. And you know what? What about children who? I mean, there's been such a lead up to this Halloween, I think, as you pointed out, it's it's a first for a lot of the kids, even the older yeah. ones. And there's always when something's you look forward to something, there's always a bit of a letdown. You know, oh, it's the yeah. day after. Now it's like we're trudging along to a world where <laughs> we don't get to wear costumes every day and we're not talking about pumpkins all the time. Right. So how do you help your kids through that kind of letdown, that post part, post-Halloween <laughs> partum depression?
2: Right. Right. Um, I think that's a tricky question. I think it's making space for it.
1: Hmm.
2: And and I don't think we need to for our children. It's not doing them any good for us to pretend that they're not feeling something or that it didn't happen or the party's not over. So I don't, I think being real with our children again, like, wow, yeah. We're done. All done celebrating. Or oh, that didn't go how you thought. You thought you'd get more candy. Mm-hmm. Oh, you thought you would get to eat it all. I wasn't <laughs> like oh man, I didn't make that clear. Like okay, um, yeah, I hear you. That doesn't feel good. If you have a little bit older children, you can also plan for that. Hey, let's come up with a plan because I hear that you're upset.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I
2: hear that you're sad. I I caution what many of us do as grownups are in the presence of young children is to try and take away the feeling. Like, oh no, it's fine. You're going to have so much fun at school. It's going to be great. I know we have this big party next week and we have things and we're going to grandma's house and we're doing the holidays are almost coming up. It's as if you've decided that those feelings are unimportant for them. And I don't care what the age of your kid's 16 or whatnot. And they're disappointed. Like it's all over. They spent, you know, 20 weeks getting ready, 20 hours getting ready for their Halloween costume.
1: I mean, maybe just let them wear it on November 1st, right? Sure, wear your
2: costume. I think my um, my daughter wore her Halloween costume for like, you know, three weeks after Halloween to <laughs> school. And it was like, yeah, all right, whatever. That was cool. Yeah, we made it. You wore it. Let's go. <laughs> right.
1: And uh, I mean, it, it. Your child, your daughter, is a perfectly functioning adult as a today, right? So it didn't yeah, make a difference.
2: Thirty-one. I'm not sure she's still wearing her Halloween costume, but I think she's <laughs> listening. So maybe she'll tell me later if she was. <laughs> well, I love it.
1: Well, this has been such good advice, and um, so thank you so much for joining us here on State at the Bay.
2: Oh, thank
1: you for having me. We've been talking to Darcy Campbell. She's the director of the Cow Hollow School, and she has been since 2002. Darcy's also the founder of The Collaboratory, which is a parent and teacher workshop series, and the co-founder of Real Parenting, a workshop and coaching practice for parents. You can find more about Cow Hollow School online and more about Darcy there as well. And um, if you want any parenting tips, definitely check out their website.
2: Thanks, Grace.
1: Thank you, Darcy. Next up, we'll be hearing about San Francisco's buried history. Stay tuned. Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Grace Juan. San Francisco has always had a gothic element, haunted places where ghosts of eras past can be seen, alleyways and streets where people swear they get an eerie chill when they walk by. Tonight we're talking about some of the city's buried histories, a golf course built on a cemetery and a hospital built on an asylum. It sounds like a Stephen King novel, but it's all true. Earlier this week, I spoke to San Francisco writer Beth Weingarner about San Francisco's hidden history, Here's our conversation. for joining us on State of the Bay today, of all days, Halloween. Thank you for having me. So San Francisco is built on buried history, and you write about one in your recent piece for Alta Magazine, and that's basically Lincoln Park Golf Course and the Legion of Honor are built on top of a cemetery. So when did that cemetery first get built?
4: The uh, city of San Francisco, after the gold rush, started filling up with people And it established cemetery after cemetery, trying to find places to bury all of the people who were coming here, dying of diseases, um, far away from home in some cases. And they finally settled on this piece of coastal land next to Land's End, saying nobody will ever want to live here. Uh, It's sort of a barren wasteland. And so this became the new municipal cemetery, which means uh, the indigent dead were buried here, people who died with no money and no friends and were buried on the city's dime. And it also opened up to a bunch of different immigrant associations and a couple of religious groups, uh, each of which had their own areas of the cemetery where they could bury their members in.
1: I like that there was a potter's field on some of the most gorgeous land in San Francisco. I mean, that feels somewhat fitting. So you were saying it was a city cemetery, and this was about when? The 1850s, 60s? Um, it officially took in its first burials in 1870, and it
4: operated right up until 1900 when the city stopped accepting any burials on city property. Mm-hmm. Was
1: it full?
4: No, I understand that they did have space left within this cemetery for more people. But at that point, um, residents of San Francisco got to the point where they did not want cemeteries in the city anymore. Uh, So city leaders first passed a law banning any more burials and then eventually um, passed laws saying that every cemetery needed to remove all of its
1: graves and move them to Colma. Yeah, and that's south of the city. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I, there are a lot of graveyards there. Um, well, when the city decommissioned the graveyard, they said, okay, we're going to move all of the bodies to Colma, I guess. Um, but that didn't really happen. And you write in your piece, Buried Histories in Alta Magazine, that um, recently workers uh, were doing some kind of construction at that area and they found some bodies. Tell us about that. Yeah, so um,
4: in 2019, the one of the city departments started building what was called a Green Street. Um, what was happening is that every time there was a heavy rainstorm, water would flood down into the Cliff neighborhood. And they were trying to find a way to prevent that from happening. So they um, installed all of this absorbent material in the ground. But to do that, they had to dig. And when they dug, they found... Um, Ultimately, about 20 graves. Ah!
1: <laughs> were they marked or?
4: <laughs> no, none of the graves there are marked anymore. Um, the markers were destroyed and removed uh, when the space converted to a golf course in the early
1: 1900s. So what? how did the workers react? I mean, was there an archaeologist on site? Or sure.
4: I don't know if there was one on site from the very beginning, but they... As soon as they found the first grave, they had somebody come out and observe the work and take notes and take care of the remains that were removed from that area. Um, And this is along El Camino Del Mar, which sort of goes around the periphery of the golf course.
1: I mean, yikes. If I was working and just putting in a green street and then I came across a couple of bones, I mean, were they in coffins or were they just bones?
4: I believe that um, that they were in coffins, but this, you know, the states of the coffins vary depending on how long they've been in the ground. Sometimes it's just sort of bone fire wood fragments at that point.
1: Oh my gosh, this is like my worst nightmare. Um, so <laughs> Beth, do we have any sense of who was in the graveyard or who these bones belong to?
4: Um. As I mentioned, most of the markers were removed from the cemetery a long time ago um, through vandalism, some fires happened. And then again, when it turned into a golf course, the rest of them were just torn up. Mm-hmm. Um, but a couple of researchers, uh, Alex Ryder and John Martini, helped reconstruct a map of the cemetery And they discovered that this area of the cemetery belonged to the French Benevolent Association. So it was mostly French immigrants living in the city.
1: Mm -hmm. And one of the um, bodies, or I guess one of the sets of bones, it was a skull with a bullet in it. What's the story behind that?
4: Yeah, so they are still working on identifying those remains for certain. And it's not like they can use um, DNA to find relatives or... Uh, anything like that. I wish they could. It feels like a
1: a possible CSI episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right, or bones,
4: right?
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
4: (laughs) So this one burial came with a skull with a hole in the right side of the head and the bullet still inside the skull. So they were able to figure out uh, what gun that bullet might have come from. And in researching newspaper articles from the era, Uh, they were able to figure out that there was a French doctor who had come to San Francisco to, I think, recover from tuberculosis, but the cold and the fog, he didn't do very well. And eventually he took his own life. And even the newspaper reports said he had shot himself in the right side of the head and that he was buried in the French section of City Cemetery.
3: Wow.
1: I mean... It's a little sad that he came all the way from France only to realize fog is not conducive to TB recovery. He should have ended up in Los Angeles. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they were able to put that together through looking at old newspaper archives, I guess. Yeah. Digitized newspapers are a great resource. That is fascinating. Your article also mentions another um, person, John Wood, I think it is. What's the story of him? I think it's Thomas Wood. Oh, Thomas Wood. Yeah.
4: During, uh, just after the cemetery was built, um, a reporter from one of the historical newspapers at the time went out and visited the cemetery to sort of see what it was like out there. Um, And in the process came across this wood um, painted white with a number on it, found out that it belonged to this man. And I apologize, I don't remember as many of the details, but he had been in the military he was honorably discharged because he was too disabled to be able to continue serving. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, came to San Francisco with no money, no prospects, a um, little bit of money, I should say. And then when his money ran out, I believe he poisoned himself wow. and um, became one of these indigent dead who um, the city buried and they tried to find him a more, quote-unquote honorable burial because he had been a military man Mm -hmm. and the newspaper said that they wouldn't accept him for a christian burial which i interpreted to mean that because he was a suicide Uh, he would be buried in a consecrated
1: cemetery mm -hmm. i mean as a potter's field you know a place where the indigent were buried i mean that cemetery is really kind of like a a cemetery brook of dreams
4: it really is um I mean, you you were talking about this beautiful piece of property, but at the time, um, a lot of the trees that are there now were not there. It was mm-hmm. described as being very barren and windswept and lonely and mm-hmm. foggy and sad. Um, mm-hmm. But there are researchers who are working on analyzing the bones that were found um, in and around the Legion of Honor. Some of the bones have been come up. We'll we'll talk about that. I expect. Yes. Um, yes. And they have found that these people had, uh, things like arthritis and labor injuries and broken bones and. These were people who had done hard physical work their entire lives and
1: mm-hmm.
4: literally the people that built
1: the city. Exactly. I mean, they built the city and then the city was built on top of them, yes. um, which leads us to the Legion of Honor. I mean, for people who haven't been there, the Legion of Honor is this beautiful classical museum with just stunning views of the city. I mean, I think we just have to say this is the northwest corner of the city. Um, and the And the cemetery was called Golden Gate Cemetery, right? Officially, yes,
4: but most people just called it city cemetery because of the municipal nature of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so the Legion of Honor is built. Tell us a little bit about that story because it's a major creep out. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, the um, the woman behind it, Alma Spreckles, um, wanted to create a memorial to the California dead from World War I, Um and created this building that is a replica of a similar building in France. I think it's like a three-quarter size or something like that. Still very grand and beautiful. But as they started digging to break ground for the project, uh, the workers began finding bones in the ground and ultimately found, I think, about 1,500 sets of remains. Um, Many of the workers were freaked out and refused (laughs) to continue working, walked off the site and eventually, uh, because there were not great laws in place to protect the remains of the dead, they were just sort of pushed over to one side and buried again.
1: Ah, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I've been to that that museum many a time, and it never occurred to me that I was walking on bones. I mean, your article calls the—I mean, kind of really—it's it, evocative because the workers were excavating. To build that museum, and the excavators were just bringing up heaps of bones yeah. i mean you call you call it a charnel heap
4: yeah <laughs> that was a quote from one of the articles uh, of the time it 's just it was uh, almost not a, not quite
1: a catacomb, still in the ground, but it's still on the ground. I mean, I guess you know when you think about your like cities in Paris, I mean, you mentioned the catacombs. I mean there are it's not unusual for buildings to be built on top of cemeteries, but in this case, I mean, I don't know. Is it well known that the Legion of Honor is built on top of a cemetery? Is there a plaque anywhere in the museum? Um, I have not been inside the museum
4: to confirm, but I don't think there's any acknowledgement um that there were ten to eleven thousand poor people buried um, around and beneath what is now the Legion of Honor Museum.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, you say that the, the workers, because there weren't great laws, they just moved the bodies um, or the bones and kind of left them there. Did they not realize? I mean, the we're talking about the early 20th century, right? The 1900s when the museum was built. I guess they just thought that the bones had been moved.
4: Yeah, it was only about 20 years after the cemetery officially closed. And it was common belief that, quote, unquote, all of the bones and all of the graves in San Francisco were no longer in the ground. Um, But at the same time, you know, there were occasionally news items in the papers that said, did you know that this land was a cemetery? And I can't remember whether those ads said there might still be people buried there. Uh, (laughs) But the process of closing down that cemetery, the city notified the family and um, families and loved ones and said come get your dead, please and uh, mm-hmm. almost nobody came and mm-hmm. the uh the prospect and the expense of moving 20 mm-hmm. something thousand graves was a lot for the city the city couldn't afford it
1: mm-hmm. i mean Let's I li- they literally let the dead lie there, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, you when the cemetery was um, operational and uh, before it was decommissioned, not everybody wanted to remain buried in San Francisco. And you write about, you know, how some people's benevolent societies and these are groups that, you know, were formed to kind of create communities for immigrants. They would go through the process of repatriating your bones to your homeland. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
4: Yeah, and it was the Chinese communities in particular, many of them felt that they only wanted to be in San Francisco for a short time, come make some money from the gold rush or other opportunities here, and then ideally go back to family. Um, But with disease and injuries and everything else, many uh, died here. I believe it's about 6,000 Chinese graves, perhaps more in City Cemetery alone. And many of them did belong to um, the organizations that were under the umbrella of the Chinese six companies, and they had funding to keep track of who was buried there, um, bring their bones back up after a few years, clean them, put them in a box, and send them back to their homeland. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, we talked about the Legion of Honor built on the graves. It's also the golf course as well. And is there a map? You you mentioned that someone has mapped the area. Is there a map online or a place where you can go to figure out, you know, if you had a really bad round on the 10th tee, you kind of might know, oh, it's because it's haunted.
4: (laughs) (laughs) The the city recently put in a marker along El Camino del Mar, again, where um, these workers found graves in 2019 with a map of the cemetery that was put together by uh, Alex Ryder and John Martini, some history of the uh, doctor who uh, ended his life and was discovered there, and some other general history. Um, I don't know exactly where that marker is, but it is nice to have something there so that people strolling in the park or Mm. um, doing a round of golf can discover um, what's all around them.
1: Yeah, and there's also, I think, a memorial... Um, near the Legion of Honor, isn't there? The, the Chinese-American community might have a marker of the people who passed.
4: past. Yeah, there are two remaining um, large monuments from the original cemetery. One is the Kang Chow marker, which is sort of a, a gateway structure that um, people have started leaving flowers in again. And uh, there's a broom there to sweep it out. And um, Chinese communities have gathered there the past couple of October's for a more formal cemetery with food and incense and paper money and all of that stuff to reconnect with the ancestors who mm. are buried there. There's also a marker up closer to the Legion of Honor parking lot. It's called the Ladies Seamen's Friends Society. Mm. They were an organization that helped bury uh, sailors who came to California, to San Francisco, who died. Uh, again, without money or resources.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I think that's really nice. You you also write about cemeteries. You have a book, you were here on a book that will come out next fall about San Francisco cemeteries. Where else are we walking over dead bodies in San Francisco?
4: (laughs) (laughs) So the first official municipal cemetery um, was right in the middle of San Francisco the area bordered by Market and McAllister and Larkin streets. It was about 15 acres, had a potter's field, again, had areas for immigrants. And um, at that time, you could be buried either at Mission Dolores, which was a Catholic cemetery, um, or basically a Yerba Buena uh, if you were not Catholic. Mm. And then a few years later, um, it should be noted, Yerba Buena filled up so so quickly they expected Mm. it to last for about 50 years and it was full by the mid-1850s just you know wow to seven years after it opened wow and so the city purchased property uh, around Lone Mountain about 170 acres and started the Laurel Hill Cemetery which the Laurel Heights neighborhood is now named for and there was also a new uh, Catholic cemetery, Cavalry Cemetery, and cemeteries for the Freemasons and the Odd Fellows.
1: And where were that? Where was that, for, is that was that also at Lone Mountain?
4: Yeah, that was all surrounding Lone Mountain. Um, places like uh, UCSF, Laurel Hill, um, yes, Trader Joe's, um, <laughs> Target up there. Uh, the columbarium is on the former site of the Odd Fellows Cemetery.
3: Ah. So
4: that whole stretch
1: of property in the middle of the city. Used to I be mean, separate. there's a Kinko's right there that I have been to, to do some photocopying and I've seen the columbarium. Um, I think it still exists as a working cemetery, right? Or It
4: is. Um, you can um, still go there and visit the remains of Californians who've been um, it's all cremation, so urns right. and other structures like that, uh, with people's knickknacks and uh, favorite items. And I don't know whether they are still taking new, um, new inurnments. <laughs> um, I visited recently, and they ha- they have some new outdoor structures. That um, one was a bird bath that is also a place where somebody's
1: ashes will someday be, which is lovely. Well, if you really want to leave your heart in San Francisco, I guess that's the place to go. Um, Well, it's so fascinating to think that, I mean, our city is not that old when you compare it to, you know, European or Asian cities, and there's so much history buried beneath. And I want to talk about another piece that you wrote for Mission Local, about another buried history moment, and that's the Magdalen Asylum, um, which was run by the Sisters of Mercy and founded in 1856. Where was that, and what's sitting on top of it now?
4: So I started getting interested in this facility because there was a small cemetery there, and it was called St Michael Cemetery. The cemetery served the Magdalene Asylum, which was created by an Irish Catholic organization that came to San Francisco um, and, I guess, claimed the gold rush from Catholic Church,
1: something along (laughs) those lines. Um, I think you read that they put a Virgin Mary down on the sidewalk and they said, this is Catholic now.
4: (laughs) (laughs) They, um, you know, they came to California wanting to do good works and. Um, Under the banner of the same Magdalene asylums that existed in Ireland, uh, often called the Magdalene Laundries, they set up a facility to take in so-called wayward women and girls um, and started out as a refuge for sex workers, but eventually contracted with the city to take in um, female juvenile delinquents or Girls arrested for being homeless or engaging in sex work, or in some cases they were orphans or what were called half orphans where the mom died and the the father mm-hmm. was either working too much to be a good parent or just didn't feel capable because of the gender roles at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but they took in these girls, but it basically served as a kind of prison
3: where mm-hmm. they were
4: doing... Sewing and embroidery and needlework and working long hours, um, not allowed to leave, not fed particularly well, um, mm-hmm. and this was supposed to
1: reform them out of their their evil ways. But uh, yeah, I mean, it really they were locked in isolation cells sometimes mm-hmm. and depressed. It was really like a girl's or ladies' prison. Yeah, as you say. Yeah, and what's out there now?
4: So. After the the um the asylum operated until the early nineteen thirties, and the city purchased the property to expand the county hospital, the general hospital, um, and they turned it into a uh, facility for mental health care and maternity care. Mm-hmm. And today it is the behavioral health center, which I think was rebuilt in the the nineties or two mm-hmm. thousands. So there's in a way still trying to do the same sorts of things helping mm-hmm. with mental health issues for people who come there.
1: Yeah. And, but the building itself they they tore down the asylum Is
4: that yeah, right? Yeah, it was it was torn down in the early 30s from what I understand.
1: What I found fascinating in your piece was the fact that, you know, parents, sometimes husbands would put their daughters or their wives in and then the newspaper would publish that fact.
4: Yeah. Um less so the if let's say there was a case of a husband who was he seemed to be checking his wife in and out regularly mm-hmm. um and that is information that i got from the uh, the archives the the register that they kept of women coming and going from the institution mm-hmm. but newspapers would report on 15 year old girl arrested for vagrancy which was basically just living on the street because mm-hmm. maybe she had nowhere else to go um And feeling like she was running with a bad crowd of people, though mm-hmm. so this girl would go before a judge, a reporter would write about the case and then say she is destined for the Magdalene Asylum to <laughs> hopefully change her ways. But, you know, these were often girls who were just in very difficult circumstances mm-hmm. and uh, the morality laws of the time made it illegal, quote unquote, to... um. Not live in a two parent household, but mm. really, um, I don't know if prison was the best thing for them, but the newspapers were always very careful to get their names and their ages and mm. usually comment on how pretty they were or yeah. how you know tired out they
1: looked, uh, yeah gosh, yeah, I mean, nothing like a city paper to. You know, write about your very worst day, and uh, you know, perpetuate a little misogyny um, as part of that. And so, you know, you I think you got interested in it also because there was a cemetery. Is there still a cemetery uh, on the property? Um, It
4: is unlikely, but not impossible. The cemetery um, newspaper reports from the era said that there was a section behind the asylum for the nuns who died in in the care there Mm -hmm. Um, and that there was another section for quote unquote residents, women who died there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also was able to get the um, disinterment records from their archives. Mm -hmm. They have meticulous archives of all of the nuns that were buried there. Mm -hmm. And some of the girls had converted. So they were buried there. But there was at least one um, indigenous girl who was a resident at mm-hmm. Magdalene Asylum who was not encountered for in mm-hmm. their disinterment records. So I don't know if she's still there. Mm. Um, later, uh, archaeological reports suggest that there's nothing there, but mm-hmm. I don't know.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you dig a little in San Francisco, no no telling what you'll find. A cable wire, a skull with a bu- bullet in it. Um Is there a place uh, at San Francisco General that kind of commemorates this history, or is it pretty much forgotten?
4: I think it is pretty much forgotten. There is a Virgin Mary grotto in front of the Behavioral Health Center, Mm -hmm. Um, nice little place to sit and reflect if you want to. Mm -hmm. But you know, there, there, and there is a little marker on it that just says that it was put there, um, I think by the the sisters of the Good Shepherd who eventually took over the Magdalene Asylum. Mm-hmm. Um, but even then, like there's no Virgin Mary there. So oh. if you didn't go read the etched stone, you wouldn't yeah. know what it was. Yeah. I mean, a lot of girls tried to escape from that place, right? A few tried. It was very difficult to escape. Um, there were high walls and bars on the windows, but there was definitely, um, One story of a girl who had been transferred to the hospital next door with some sort of skin infection and she was able to get out a window and somebody helped her get over the six or eight foot fence. Um, And the newspaper account said, well, she must have had help uh, to get out of there. But even then, like you couldn't escape from Mm -hmm. the asylum directly. You had to find another way out. I love it. I hope she got
1: out. (laughs) Well, I want to ask you, you're, as I've mentioned before, you're writing a book about cemeteries and I'm curious, what fascinates you about cemeteries, Beth? Like why, why is that something you've been interested in?
4: Well, I have actually been drawn to them. It's a place like if I, if I go on vacation somewhere, I like to see the old like neighborhood cemeteries. There's a lot of history. You know, you read the names, you get a sense of how long they lived and what their life must have been like. But in particular, San Francisco interested me because it's common wisdom uh, that all the cemeteries are gone, that there aren't any here anymore. Um, And I started digging into the research and discovered again and again, like, we said that we moved all the bodies, but there's plenty of them still here. And they make themselves known from time to time. Uh, when the university of San Francisco was being built, um, they found bodies when uh, the first city hall in that triangle in center, in the center of San Francisco was first being built at uh, McAllister mm-hmm. street. They found bodies again and again. Um, This happened in the same location when they were uh, renovating to make that site, the Asian Art Museum, Eh. in the 2000s. They found more remains, um, and there are plenty probably still beneath UN Plaza, the main library, and Mm -hmm. Asian Art Museum. I
1: mean, and the bodies went to Colma. Is there, were they... When they moved the bodies, let's say, from city cemetery, did they individually bury them or how did that happen?
4: Well, it depended by cemetery and the records and the headstones, if the headstones were still there. Apparently, for example, with Calvary Cemetery, which was the Catholic cemetery near Lone Mountain, um, they had great records and they tried to move everybody individually as Mm -hmm. best they could. Um, but for the most part, for example, with the Oddfellow Cemetery, um, pretty much everyone was moved into a single grave, um, separated from the rest of the cemetery in Colma. Um, and that is marked with a single monument. It's about twenty six thousand people there, mm. and it's fenced off in an empty lot between Best Buy and Home Depot.
1: Ah <laughs> you're you're buying a drill. And then there's a massive mass grave next door to you. I mean, you can't can't escape it, I guess. History is everywhere. I mean, so it's Halloween. Do you find, knowing all of this, that it makes San Francisco more spooky for you? Or do you feel more at home knowing where the cemeteries are?
4: Well, I did start this in part because I wanted to... um, develop a deeper connection to san francisco um and this is the kind of history that appeals to me more than i don't know gangsters or (laughs) um, early millionaires or whatever but you know i was talking about discovering that these um graves were still here it makes me really sad to think of all these people that we don't know their stories anymore you know um if you go to Sonoma County, for example, most of its pioneer cemeteries are still there and they're mm-hmm. still marked, and you know, mm-hmm. who's there. Um, but in San Francisco, a lot of that information has been lost. These people have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, we've built on top of them and mm-hmm. it feels like an excuse to forget about history.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the land is so valuable that we've just literally built on our dead, Yeah, right? I mean, we're we're living on their shoulders. (laughs) I think that's what to say. Well, I think it's so fascinating and I can't wait for your book to come out. Uh, Do you have a name for it?
4: Uh, no, we're still working on a title, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) Well, we'll definitely have our eyes out for it. I want to thank you. This has been Beth Weingarner. She has been helping us uncover some of these dark stories and interesting stories um, and forgotten stories of San Francisco's past. You can find Beth's writing in the New York Times, Alta Magazine, and Mission Local. As I said, she has a book about the history of San Francisco cemeteries coming out next fall. Thanks for joining us on State of the Bay, Beth.
4: Thanks for having me. This has been fun.
1: That was my interview with Beth Weingartner. Coming up next, Ethan Elkind learns more about Golden Thread Productions.
0: San Francisco-based Golden Thread Productions is the first American theater company devoted to the Middle East. Its current production, The Language of Wild Berries, opened on October 14th. It was written by celebrated Iranian playwright Nagma Samini, and it's translated and directed by Golden Thread's founding artistic director emeritus Taranj Yagiazarian. In the 25 years since it was founded, Golden Thread has premiered more than 100 new plays from or about the Middle East, including seven original plays for young audiences based on Middle Eastern folktales. I'm so pleased to sit down now with Taranj and Nagma to hear about the play and the unique theater company that's putting it on. Welcome to you both to State of the Bay. Thank you. Thank you for
3: the invitation.
0: So, Taranj, I'd love to start with you. Can you tell us what inspired you to start Golden Thread Productions?
3: Well, as a you know immigrant artist uh, from Iran... Middle Eastern woman, when I graduated from university, received my master's in theater, I looked around and didn't really see theater companies interested in or capable of producing the plays that I was interested in or the plays that I was writing and creating. And it seemed necessary to create basically an artistic home for myself and other Middle Eastern artists you know, similarly placed. So we started Golden Thread Productions. I'm sure if we would have an audience or if there are other artists in a similar situation as me, but within two or three years, it was confirmed that yes, there is an audience hungry for the content that we are producing and several, several artists across the Bay Area, California, and then the United States. And Eventually, internationally, that were interested in our mission and the kind of productions that we wanted to do.
0: And can you share any stories that for you demonstrate the impact that Golden Thread has had either here in San Francisco or beyond?
3: Well, there are numerous stories that I could share, but I would say, you know. Right after 9-11, for example, many arts organizations focused on Middle Eastern art canceled their programming, but Golden Thread chose to move forward with our Reorient Festival, which opened in October of 2001. And our collection of short stories from or about the Middle East really presenting a very diverse, eclectic mix of perspectives and aesthetics from the Middle East, you know, when on stage in San Francisco in the process of making a decision to move forward. I reached out to various arts organizations and theater companies in the Bay Area and asked for their support, which they gave, including Theater Bay Area Intersection for the Arts, because some of the participants were worried about their safety. We also asked the local police department to sort of circle the building when we were having rehearsals and performances. And I must say that um, it was an incredible show of support by our community, uh, a huge reception of the productions that year. And I will say also that the night that the U.S. was bombing Afghanistan, we had a performance at the theater, which we opened with a musical performance of musicians from Afghanistan. And we dedicated that performance to the people of Afghanistan that night.
0: Well, such a turbulent time and uh, really amazing stories from then. And certainly we hope things are better now than they were 20 years ago in that respect. But As I mentioned in the introduction, Golden Thread's current production is a play entitled The Language of Wild Berries, and let's play a clip now from it. Wow, look how sunny it is today.
3: Listen, let me talk to my mom and explain the situation to her. It'd be easier this way.
0: It'll be difficult no matter how she hears the news. I worry about her heart.
3: It won't be difficult if she understands we'll both be happier after the divorce.
0: Assuming we will really be happier nobody knows so nagma i'd love to turn to you now as the playwright can you tell us about that clip and how it fits into the story of the play
5: yeah uh, first of all thank you so much for having me actually the play is happening in a road so the play is kind of a road play instead of road movie and this is about a a young Iranian couple who are lost in that uh, very mysterious road. And uh, one young boy is chasing them. So uh, the play goes to into their um, life uh, and to their very personal stories.
0: Well, can you tell us what inspired you to write The Language of Wild Berries? Was there a particular message that you were hoping to get across?
5: Um, yeah, actually, there are so many different sources that inspired me for writing this play, from my very personal life to the social political situation of my country. But the main keyword of the play, in my opinion, is communication.
0: So that's the uh, that's the key theme of the of the play. Well, I, I know you're a, a well known playwright whose work has been shown internationally, and, and this is the premiere of your work here in the United States. Now that you're Living in this country, so I'm wondering if you have particular hopes for how your work might influence perceptions here.
5: Yeah, first of all, I think I'm I'm very lucky to have this opportunity to see one of my plays on the stage of uh, one of the very prominent theaters in San Francisco. And actually my hope is not just for myself because I know theater in Iran is pretty progressive. And maybe I am one of the very first Iranian playwrights who have this chance to be heard in here. So I hope this would be the very beginning of many other Iranian plays being translated and being heard in here in United States.
0: Well, we certainly hope so. It's hard to ignore the context of what's happening right now in Iran. Protests erupted there, triggered by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, who died in a hospital three days after being arrested by the morality of police, for allegedly being dressed inappropriately. And I'm curious to hear from you both, but uh, you know, maybe, uh, Nagma, I'll start with you. What is What do you see as the interplay between this work and what is happening in Iran right now?
5: Um, Actually, the play obviously have been written years before these recent happenings. So they are not anything directly connected to the imprisoned events in Iran. But I think the audience can find all the experiments and happenings in Iran, which lead to the recent contemporary events. So I think uh, you can see how the characters are restless and how they are suffering from, you know, social problems. So I think the audience can find so many things about recent events in the play.
0: Mm -hmm. And Taranj, what do you uh, make of how this play might shed light on some of the current events that are happening now?
3: Well, ironically, uh, you know, the play makes reference to the 2009 Green Movement and in terms of timeline uh, happens around that time. And I was concerned, like, what can we do so that our audiences feel what that may have been like? And now, you know, ironically, we don't have to do anything because it's very clear it's on TV every day and the audience has a... Uh, can understand exactly how the political environment can impact people's personal lives. Um, You know, does it help them understand what is going on? I I don't know, but it places Iran front and center, and it's a unique narrative. And hopefully, you know, audiences will come and participate in post-play discussions and ask more questions
2: and, and learn something new.
0: And where can listeners go to learn more about the play and buy tickets for it?